This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, March 29th, 2019. I'm Caleb Brown. Our criminal justice system is flawed, and flawed so deeply the problems we associate with police, prosecutors, public defenders, and departments of corrections almost seem to conspire to give so many criminal defendants less than fair treatment. Rachel Elise Barco, a professor of law at New York University, is author of the new book, Prisoners of Politics, Breaking the Cycle of Mass Incarceration. We spoke last week. Politicians, uh, you know, they talk about criminal justice in many cases the same way they talk about immigration. Uh, When it comes to forming policy, uh, individual crimes are given this outsized uh, influence when it comes to policymaking. Uh, it flies in the face for the most part uh, with what we know about deterrence and the power of harsh punishments to, to dole out deterrence. What do we know with certainty about the relationship between the harshness of punishment and deterrence and what predicts deterrence better? So what we know is that people's gut-level intuition that it's always better to have tougher sentences as a matter of deterrence or incapacitation is inaccurate because that gut intuition misses the trade-offs. So first of all, for deterrence, we know that what matters much more based on the empirical studies is whether or not someone thinks they're going to get caught. So odds of detection and the certainty that there'll be any kind of consequence matters far more for someone's decision-making than what would the penalty be should they get caught. So we know that. Um, And then the other thing that we also know is uh, the other argument in favor of longer sentences that you often hear is, well, they incapacitate. You know, even if they don't deter, they lock people up for a long time. And that's a good thing because then someone can't commit a crime while they're locked away. Um, What that misses is that 95% of the people who are incarcerated come back out. And the fact that they're in for longer periods of time makes it that much more difficult for them to reenter successfully. So there's a real trade-off between whatever benefit we obtain from keeping someone locked away and them not committing crimes while that's happening to what happens when they come back out. And then the other variable that tends to get lost is most people would age out of their criminal conduct anyway. Or they wouldn't commit another crime because whatever crime they did commit was the kind of one-off crime of passion that's not going to be repeated. So even when we think about incapacitation, there's kind of an assumption, oh, there would be so many more crimes that we're, we're preventing when, in fact, in many cases, there really wouldn't have been. So that longer time that someone is put away for isn't really serving any kind of a benefit. And again, it's just going to make it harder for when people come out. So I think that's the trade-off that tends to get lost when people make assumptions about tough on crime always being a better strategy. It seems a little bit ironic that we're talking about setting policy for a system where evidence is the coin of the realm, where evidence informing the policies about that system doesn't necessarily have the sway that it should. So how much should or how can we inject reason into these debates about setting criminal justice policy? I think the key is that we don't just have our policy get set in the political process writ large, because that's always going to be a very emotionally driven, gut-level instinct kind of decision that is driven by whatever it is that voters have seen on the news or in social media, which tend to be, you know, the worst cases that draw people's attention and make them the most outraged and want, you know, this superficially tough-looking response. So getting it out of that political environment 
moment to a space where, as you say, we could actually look and say, well, gee, what works to reduce whatever criminal behavior it is that we're concerned with? What would be the best use of limited fiscal dollars to get the best public safety outcome? And that's just not the kind of conversation we can have at a political level because it's just too emotional. It's driven by sound bites. No one has the time to try to explain why a, a better investment uh, strategy might involve in programming or diversion. You know, that's just very hard to have a conversation like that. So I think the key is to create institutions that are charged with looking at evidence, as you say, and what we know, and making sure that the decisions are grounded in as much empirical knowledge as we have. So we're at least making our best guess as what would help achieve better public safety outcomes. And very often, that's not going to be the same kind of decision that you would get if you left it in a political environment that's more emotionally driven. The people who make decisions about who should be uh, uh, prosecutors, who should be judges, things like that, to the extent that those uh, offices are elected, are the most likely to be separated from the criminal justice system itself. That is to say, most distant from how the criminal justice system actually functions. Can you describe this uh, menu of offenses that prosecutors often have at their disposal when someone has been charged? It's really hard to overstate the power of a prosecutor. We know, for example, at the federal level that, you know, there are upwards of 300,000 different kinds of regulatory offenses that could lead to criminal charges, more than 4,000 in our federal statutes, crimes that could be charged. The the list is, is really, we can't even give you an accurate number. That's how many there are. People have tried to get a count and it's almost impossible. So the fact that a prosecutor could choose from among a range of that many crimes means that the prosecutor in any given case, what the defendant did wrong is probably going to be covered by more than one statutory offense. And that statutory offense is likely to have a range of different punishments attached to it, depending upon what the prosecutor would decide to charge. So that ability to pick and choose which statute should I charge in this given case to a prosecutor gives them enormous leverage because you could have a prosecutor say to a defendant, look, you know, I could, if you plead guilty, the charge I'm going to bring against you is this relatively lesser punished, say, drug possession charge. But if you decide you're going to go to trial, I'm going to indict you instead for these additional uh, you know, drug trafficking, for being responsible for larger quantities of drugs. Maybe there's a weapon enhancement. You know, could look around for more kinds of things and very quickly be able to charge in a way that the defendant, should he or she decide to go to trial, could be facing a punishment that is orders of magnitude greater. We know of cases where the offer on the table was, you know, plead guilty, you could get two years, go to trial, and I'm going to charge you with a repeat offender statute where the punishment is life. So the dynamic between a prosecutor and a defendant is one where the prosecutor holds all the cards, the ability to pick those offenses to charge somebody with. And very often these offenses, because of the political climate, has have very long sentences attached to them and often mandatory minimum sentences. So the defendant can't think, well, but even if I were found guilty, the judge maybe would give me a break because there'll be a mandatory minimum floor that the defendant will absolutely get should he be found guilty. So that dynamic just creates an environment that makes it very, very difficult for defendants to be able to freely exercise their right to a jury trial. And it explains the fact that of our criminal convictions, more than 95 percent of them are the result of guilty pleas. 
conservatives tend to love Antonin Scalia. And conservatives also tend to be the people who are, I think, relatively least concerned with these very harsh punishments that uh, are handed out for things like drug crimes. Um, I'm sure you have a, a lot of stories about Antonin Scalia, but uh, how would you characterize his broad view of the rights due to criminal defendants? He was an originalist, as many people know, meaning that he uh, took guidance on what the Constitution's meaning is based on what it meant at the time that it was written. And in light of that, that constitutional method of interpretation, that means it reflects what the framers were concerned with. And when you look at foundational documents behind the Constitution and the things the framers were writing about, it becomes very apparent very quickly that they were concerned with government abuse in criminal cases. So it's not surprising to me that Justice Scalia was someone who, in many lines of jurisprudence, came out in favor of criminal defendants and their rights because those rights are grounded in the Constitution and have very strong historical arguments behind them, and he was very principled in enforcing them and guaranteeing them. Not universally so. <laughs> there, there are a few areas that I think um, he he did not stay completely in line with where he should have. Um, but by and large, uh, he has a whole host of really important doctrinal areas where, because the originalist argument was in favor of the rights of the accused, he enforced it robustly and honestly. And I do think that people who care about the rights that are enshrined in the Constitution should absolutely be concerned with government overreach in criminal cases. That was one of the most uh, the, one of the areas where the framers were, frankly, kind of obsessed about it. If you look at the Bill of Rights, it's all about criminal procedure and criminal protections. And even before the Bill of Rights is written, we see in Article Three itself uh, provision for a jury trial. So the idea that the framers knew government overreach could be its most dangerous and disconcerting in criminal cases, if anything, that fear and that concern has only gotten worse over time in light of the expansion of criminal statutes and powers. And it's that much more important to make sure that all those constitutional guarantees are robustly enforced. Now, you mentioned uh, the vast majority of convictions come from guilty pleas, both at the state and, and federal levels. Uh, how far away, I mean, you still technically have that right to go to a jury trial, but it seems as if that right is less meaningful than it ought to be. For people who are judges or lawyers who want to try to take this problem seriously and still appreciate this, the fact that you technically do have that right, what what kind of argument would you make? Well, I would try to um, imagine put yourself in the shoes of a defendant and and imagine that um, you are being accused of a crime that and let's start with a case that's a crime you didn't even commit. Um, you know, someone is claiming that they they saw you steal something. And so there's a witness against you and you're going to say that wasn't me. It's a misidentification case. And the prosecutor saying, hey, look, if you plead guilty, I'm going to give you a, a charge that carries a sentence of up to one year. But if you decide to go to trial, I'm going to charge you with this enhanced theft statute that has a five-year mandatory minimum, let's say. So you're thinking to yourself, okay, if I take the risk and go to trial, what if the jury doesn't believe me? What if they believe this other person who's saying this other thing? I mean, there's no guarantee that the jury is going to find me credible even though I'm telling the truth. And if I lose after trial, 
I'm looking at five years. That's five years away from my children. That's five years out of my life. I may have a ailing parent who will pass away while I'm serving my time and I won't be able to be by their bedside. I will miss formative years in the lives of my children as they're growing up. That's a long time. Whereas if I just plead guilty, they're saying it's 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 one year. Now imagine that same kind of conversation and instead of one year versus five years, it's one years versus 10 years or 20 years. You can imagine how coercive that kind of negotiating environment is because there is no guarantee for a defendant that the jury will see things their way. And that was in an instance where I hypothesize that our defendant is innocent. We can imagine now that the defendant is guilty and is thinking, but I'm guilty of one thing, but I'm not guilty of the thing in the way the government thinks I am. It's not as bad as the government thinks I am. You know, so same dynamic. Government says if you plead guilty, you know, you can get a sentence of one year. But if you go to trial, you risk this 10-year, 20-year kind of enhancement. And the defendant might think, look, I, I, it's not as bad as you think. I don't deserve that kind of sentence that you're threatening me with because it, the facts are a little different than you imagine, but may think, but again, the jury may not see things exactly my way, or they may trust the government's version of the facts because I don't even know as the defendant what facts the, de the government has. They don't even have to tell me while we're plea bargaining what kind of evidence they have against me. They don't have to tell me how strong their case is. They don't even have to tell me if they have evidence that shows that I didn't do it. They don't have to turn that over to me until we get to trial. So while I'm negotiating, I'm negotiating as a defendant in the dark about what kind of government cases I'm looking at, and I'm worried about this longer punishment. And in that kind of setting, it is highly likely that defendants are going to say, I can't risk it. You know, I can't risk it to exercise my constitutional right to a trial. I may have very good claims that certain kinds of evidence should be excluded or the government's case uh, is, is not right in some way. But, but I can't risk that I may not ultimately persuade the decision maker at my trial. And if I lose at trial, I am facing punishments orders of magnitude longer. And in that kind of climate, you really just can't expect defendants to to be, it's hard to think of that as a bargain in any way that I think of the term bargain. You know, that is a very coercive environment. And it really what it is, is there's a penalty on exercising your right to go to trial. And because that penalty is so great, defendants don't want to pay that price. Does polling tell us anything about, well, one, the legitimacy of police in low-income, high-minority population communities or uh, credibility of the criminal justice system in general or support for this or that uh, criminal justice reform? So one thing we do know is in communities that are heavily policed, uh, that frankly, all too often the relationship between the community and the police isn't, isn't a good one. Um, it certainly gets worse if we have instances of officers shooting people who turn out to be unarmed. All of that erodes the climate of trust that you need to have in a community of police in order to have effective law enforcement because you need the community to trust the police and view them as legitimate to get cooperation, to get people to call the police when there's problems, to get people willing to serve as witnesses in cases. So when we are in communities that are highly policed and the relationship is bad, 
that is bad for law enforcement and it's bad for public safety. And it helps explain why we see such abysmally low clearance rates in so many communities for very violent crimes where homicides, it's less than a 50% chance that they'll be solved. So we know in those places there's a concern with the police. And we also know in those same communities that have the most involvement with the criminal justice system, that those are the communities that recognize that it's not working, you know, that this kind of superficially tough approach is decimating the communities in terms of taking people away and locking them up and removing them from their families. It has generational impacts that are negative on children and makes it much more difficult for communities to thrive. And they also know it's not helping on the public safety front because they're still experiencing incidents of violence in their communities. Instead, it's just, you know, having officers sometimes go after low-hanging fruit of low-level offenses, but aren't really getting at the core crimes that they're most concerned with. So in those communities that are most directly affected by mass incarceration, we do see those communities uh, wanting and expressing an interest in a better approach. And that is reflected in part in places where we've seen progressive prosecutors get elected by a group of people in the community that have frankly just had enough with the old approach. I, I wouldn't say at this point this is a universal thing that we're seeing throughout the country, but in the places most directly affected, I do think it tells us something about how effective the strategies we've been using for the past several decades have been. And I do think it's a way in which those communities are expressing that there should be a better way because what they've been experiencing hasn't been working. Yeah, to the extent, though, a local community decides to hire a prosecutor that is, uh, I guess, more understanding or more appreciative of uh, the the characteristics of a community, those gains are easily lost. Oh, yeah. That is that that is they're not a they're not a matter of law; they're a matter of temporary electoral outcomes. Uh, but what do we know about what ought to change? in law? Or what, what do you advocate specifically with respect to changes in law? Oh, yeah. And I think it is a good point that you raise that those kinds of electoral shifts are ephemeral unless there are institutional changes that are put into place that are more durable. So the kinds of things that I argue for in my book are to put in place agencies within a jurisdiction that are charged with looking at what we know about data and evidence of what helps to uh, enhance public safety and make the best use of our limited government resources to set criminal justice policies and to have those agencies have to explain on a record why they're making the decisions that they're making and that could be challenged in a court to make sure that it's not an arbitrary and capricious decision. It could be subject to cost-benefit analysis oversight to make sure that they're choosing a path that isn't overly expensive and we're getting the most bang for our buck. And that model may sound weird for criminal justice, but of course, that's a very familiar model in terms of how we deal with almost every other health and safety issue in America. When we think about workplace safety or environmental safety, we put in place agencies. We tell them, you know, the public, the democracy says, we, look, we're our goal is health and safety, and we would like you to help us achieve it by looking at the evidence and the data. Um, so it's still the polity expressing what they want, but it's an agency that is then charged with administering that goal and making sure that it's most effectively achieved and having to explain itself and having some oversight over that process. And in addition to creating a scheme that does that, I think another key in ingredient to getting better criminal justice policies is making sure that prison isn't viewed as a free resource that can just be tapped into unlimited without thinking about 
that it's it actually costs a lot of money and there's often better, cheaper alternatives that do a better job in terms of public safety. And the system we have now is a local actor, a local prosecutor can bring charges. And when someone gets sent away to a state prison, the local prosecutor doesn't pay for that. The local community doesn't pay for that. You know, that comes out of the state dollars. And having an agency structure in place that not only has to explain policies, but that puts a effectively a cap on how much any given community could use prison without having to pay for it. So some way in which they internalize the costs. Having an agency do things like that has a really positive disciplining effect on how decisions get made because at that point, there's a premium placed on being rational about it and thinking, okay, I can't – I don't have unlimited amounts of money to spend and I really need to think about with this limited resource, who really needs to be there and what are ways in which we could deal with other kinds of criminal behaviors and conduct without – thinking of prison unthinkingly as this kind of free, easily available option. When it becomes something that is more of a finite resource, it requires the decision maker then to think about alternatives. And as soon as that happens, we we get better decisions because in many cases, prison is actually not the right answer for things. It's just the political climate we have now makes it an easy choice when it really shouldn't. Yeah, it not, we shouldn't it shouldn't be lost in our conversation here that you teach regulatory policy, regulatory law, and that the criminal justice system behaves the way any bureaucracy would facing certain incentives. Yes, that is, for me, this is all like the most perfectly natural thing in the world that we would, of course, want to set up government institutions with checks on them to make sure they're not engaged in overreaching or self-dealing or that they, you know, get captured by inside institutional interests. But weirdly, that has been kind of lost in the conversation about criminal justice because it's operated in a separate sphere. I think it comes from the fact that it has roots in notions of morality and seems more like a you know, a kind of just desserts driven decision making model that put it outside of that other way of thinking. But in fact, we have a very utilitarian goal in our criminal justice policies. We want public safety. And the way to achieve that does require harnessing studies and expertise uh, because it is out there and it is something that should be used. So it may seem unusual to talk about those kinds of things for criminal justice, but it really is less so when you think about the broader framework of how we address health and safety in America. There are a lot of uh, longstanding libertarian ideas about how to deal with problems in our criminal justice system. And I'll just rattle a few off and you can pick up any of these that you want and, and comment on them. Uh, conscientious acquittal, also known as jury nullification. Um, juries to be made aware of the potential range of punishments a defendant might face. Uh, juries potentially being made aware of offers that were made by prosecutors. And of course, I'm only aware of one one state that has done this broad scale reform of mens rea requirements. So all good topics. I think I might focus on the jury and its decline because I do think that's been a big problem in the development of criminal law. I think when the framers set up the Constitution the jury was an integral part of checking government overreach because it wasn't enough to just have a judge do it because the judge was an arm of government. And you needed to have regular people, regular citizens in a role checking government excess. And with the rise of plea bargaining and the decline of jury trials, you know, we've really seen that role fall out of favor. But it's also fallen out of favor because of an image of the jury as just a fact finder, you know, just there to figure out what happened. When if you go back to the original history, the jury was doing more than that. It was really checking instances where the government was applying law in particular cases that was just, ex it was an overreach. It might have literally applied 
applied, but it was really violating the spirit of that law to have it um, apply it to a given defendant. And so the jury, knowing what punishments were back then, because pretty much everything was punishable by death, could say, you know, even if the defendant did this, even if our fact-finding rule says one thing, it would still be excessive to allow the government to go forward and get this particular punishment here. So we had historically a stronger role for the jury in checking punishments that were too long. But over time in Supreme Court case law, there becomes an image of the jury as that's not really its role, that it's really just a fact finder. And so now we don't tell juries, for example, about mandatory sentences that may apply. And they're not told that they have this power if they want to um, acquit, even in the face of evidence that may look like it's favorable for the government, because they have other reasons for thinking as a policy matter, the law doesn't properly apply in a case. And it's really weakened the jury as a check. And it does help explain why we see this rise in plea bargaining. And it would be, you know, in an ideal world, in addition to helping to put in place these expert bodies that set better policies, to also reinvigorate juries so that in individual cases where these policies and laws get applied, you have an additional check kind of at the retail level to make sure that the government is proceeding in a way that comports with what, you know, a group of representatives from the community think makes sense. Rachel Elise Barco is a professor of law at New York University and author of the new book, Prisoners of Politics. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.